This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we'll be joined by a former congressman, Keith Rothfuss. Congressman Rothfuss served in the U.S. House from 2013 through 2019, representing a district just outside Pittsburgh. He served on the Financial Services Committee, among other committee responsibilities. He is somebody that, since leaving Congress, has devoted himself towards distilling what are those kinds of reforms to Congress that are needed. But he's also devoted himself to a much larger cause. What are those principles that are most in need of restoring? We hope you enjoy the program. Congressman Rothfuss, so great to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast. For the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us what it was like running for Congress and then serving in Congress during two just really interconnected but really fascinating populist-infused moments uh, in 2012, when you were elected, uh, uh, you, you came in on a, uh, on a, on a platform that um, could broadly be considered in alignment with the Tea Party. Um, but uh, over your you know, six years in Congress, you definitely um, you had moments in which uh, you had to you know, be prudential and think about, well, maybe my platform supports this, but now that I'm serving in Congress, I have to consider these other variables. So tell us what that was like. Um, and in general, you know, now that you're uh, no longer in Congress, um, any insights that you may have had in the years after you've left? Yeah, great questions, uh, Garrett. You know, I remember back in 2012 when I uh, was elected for the first time. I had run in 2010 in the Tea Party wave year, lost narrowly that year, but came back in 2012 and was one of the bright spots for the Republican Party that year, when, otherwise disappointing when, when President Obama was reelected and, and Mitt Romney lost. Uh, Romney carried my district handily, and I remember when I was running, I kept on talking about the issues at that time, jobs, debt, and stopping the Obama agenda, which was crushing us left and right with the regulatory onslaught. Uh, I got elected in 2012, uh, representing a good swath of Western Pennsylvania. Um, and I remember clearly coming in in January 2013, how crushed people were, mm -hmm. that we were facing another four years of Barack Obama. So all the things that we've been campaigning on, we weren't gonna be able to achieve. So we had to look for areas where we could. Uh, we were all still very much concerned about the debt. Uh, people do forget that there was a, actually a reduction in federal spending mm -hmm. that was a consequence of, of the, uh, uh, the sequester legislation that John Boehner had negotiated with Barack Obama, which was having detrimental impacts on the defense budget, actually. So lots of concerns going back and then, and how do you navigate out of that? Uh, unfortunately, they navigated out of it by breaking the caps and for everything, and, and mm -hmm. we continued uh, to spend more money than, than we had, although nothing like what happened after I left sure. with respect to, to uh, the wild spending spree we've been on the last few years. But we had to temper our expectations during those four years of Barack Obama. We had uh, good oversight that was going on. We tried to hold the Obama administration accountable. We even held Eric Holder in contempt 
of Congress for failing to respond to subpoenas arising out of the Fast and Furious scandal, right. where they were complicit in shipping guns into Mexico that were used to kill a, a border agent uh, by, that the cartels had gotten a hold of. Um, and there's never been any accountability for that, by the way, just like there's never been any accountability for what the FBI and Department of Justice did in 2016, which we're learning now from the, the new Durham report. Um, but fast forward to 2016, when you did have a populist uh, rising uh, with respect to the campaign of Donald Trump, where he crushed everybody in the primaries and then surprised a lot of people in the general election. But in western Pennsylvania, you could see it building. Sure. You could see the enthusiasm for Donald Trump, somebody coming in from the outside, frustrated with a broken Washington, D.C., and looking to get Washington off of our backs. Uh, real threats from Washington, D.C., for example, for the uh, uh, Pennsylvania's energy industry and, and the great potential we had to really be a benefit not only to Pennsylvania, not only to the United States, but to the world. Look what's happened with... Uh, Eastern Europe, gas supplies. Pennsylvania has such tremendous wealth in terms of natural gas that we could be exporting to Eastern Europe, to Western Europe, and taking some pressure off uh, from the, the, the demands from Western Europe to import gas from Russia. Mm -hmm. It's too bad we're in that, that situation. Whereas if we had allowed Pennsylvania's resources to develop, uh, it could mitigate against that threat. But yeah, a, a lot going on out of uh, Pennsylvania, riding the waves uh, through uh, the 2010s, and still looking to to get the country back on track. Mm -hmm. I remember. Uh, so in all uh, <laughs> in in all disclosure to our listeners, uh, I volunteered on uh, uh, Congressman Rothfuss's 2012 race, and uh, I think of all the campaigns that I've ever volunteered on, it was the one I had the most blast on. And no, it wasn't uh, just because um, we had uh, the best uh, pizza parties, and we actually got to um, hang out with you. Um, <laughs> there were so many races where we actually never had to had a chance to meet um, the congressman or the senator that we were volunteering for. But um, you were right there with us, uh, you know, phone banking, um, and uh, it was of course gratifying when you won. We were the as cool well. campaign that year. We actually we we again we were one of the bright spots uh, where we picked up that Democrat seat. Um, but I remember that the election night when I won and it looked as though Obama was going to get reelected. And mm -hmm. I remember my campaign manager telling me, you're going to go down to a room full of very disappointed people down there and you're their hope now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was a, a pretty intimidating uh, speech I had to give that night because, again, it was a great privilege to get elected to Congress. But knowing what I was walking into mm -hmm. with respect to a second Obama term. And all that that entailed was, was uh, a little bit humbling. Sure. Um, but, of course, you couldn't have predicted that, um, you know, during your time in Congress, there would be a, a true, you know, market shift in the Republican Party. Um, and so maybe, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit what it was like um, serving in Congress um, uh, as opposed to your first uh, two terms, which were, uh, which were largely marked by, um, you know, opposing the Obama administration, but then in the first term of the Trump administration, what, what it was like to, um, you know, be crafting legislation that um, had a uh, chance of, um, you know, being enacted. Yeah, let me touch on that shift in the party that I saw happening, and I was right there, it was in June of 2015, uh, right before President Trump 
announce his campaign, we had a vote in Congress, which I think was one of the more consequential votes. Uh, and I'll never forget it. When you're in, in the majority party, there is a cardinal rule. You never vote against a procedural rule because if you do that, it's going to give the control of the floor. Uh, we had a situation happen in June of 2015 where President Obama wanted Trade Promotion Authority to go and negotiate something known as the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We were going to give very broad authority to, to President Obama to negotiate a trade deal, bring it back to the, the Congress, and all you'd get is an up or down vote, yes mm -hmm. or no. So if you want to have an influence in what's going to come back, you better make sure you have something in the Trade Promotion Authority that's going to somewhat tie his hands. Uh, um, I was concerned about things he'd be negotiating with respect to energy policy that might end up in a trade deal, and that would hurt Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, so they put together a Trade Promotion Authority piece of legislation, and they were going to bring that to the floor. And I had concerns about it because, again, we were going to be giving a lot of uh, power to, to, to President Obama. Uh, they had some issues with the, the whip count and so they realized that they had to package a few things together and something including something called trade adjustment assistance which would help individuals who might be displaced by a trade deal but the problem with the trade adjustment assistance was that it was going to cost some money therefore they had to have a so-called pay for it, something to pay for it okay so they came up with an idea that they would uh, reform uh, some medicaid medicare spending and they packaged this whole thing together in a very convoluted rule procedural rule where it set forth the, the, the stages at which things would be brought up during the debate and voted on and then it would automatically be deemed to be recombined back together and sent over to the Senate. Um, but you were being told this by leadership. Hey, leadership. just vote for this. Just, it's fine. Just vote for it. Okay. Until I realized that within the rule itself, there was, it wasn't just a procedural rule, there was a substantive provision that we were voting on in okay. there. And that was going to be the, the changing in the Medicare provision. So it really wasn't just a procedural rule. And there were 34 of us who voted no on that. And it was, it was almost like the, the first time that the Freedom Caucus really showed uh, some leverage. Okay. You know, they had to scramble. They got ended up getting eight Democrats to vote for the rule when it passed, but it uh, eventually uh, they had some real problems with the legislation. But this was right before President Trump came down, and what was one of his big issues? Trade deals. Mm -hmm. And t Donald Trump has been speaking out on the trade issue since the 1980s. Uh, he understood what was happening to a lot of the towns across the industrial heartland, including in my district in western Pennsylvania. Again, which is why President Trump was able to capture a lot of, uh, of votes that traditionally Republicans were not getting, and which is how he won states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin in 2016, surprising a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so we came in with, with a new president. Uh, uh, I remember the day he was inaugurated. Uh, I remember the riots that were going on. I remember cars being burned, windows being smashed, uh, people being assaulted. Uh, you didn't see that happening at the Capitol, though, mm -mm. because there was a security perimeter at the Capitol, the kind of security perimeter that should have been set up on January 6th, but was not. Um, I, I go back to what Michael Chertoff, former Homeland Security Secretary, said after, after what happened on January 6th. He said it on January 7th. He said, 
You did not re need to read a an intelligence briefing to know that there was going to be trouble on January 6th. You re needed to read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And so the, the so many things uh, uh, led to January 6th. Uh, one of them was the failure to secure the Capitol. Uh, um, but I think there is plenty of blame to go all around uh, on January 6th. But in, in the end, they knew uh, that they should have been better prepared for the trouble that happened that day. Let's talk a little bit about um, when you were in Congress, the colleagues that you had. What was their willingness? And of course, you had many colleagues, so you know maybe you can just pick a few examples. Um, what was, in general, their willingness to take seriously their institutional role as congressmen, as opposed to maybe viewing themselves as a member of the party first and a member of Congress second. I ask this because, yeah. um, I mean, we're both members of the Federalist Society. We talk a lot about, um, you know, institutional um, prerogatives um, when we talk about the separation of powers. But uh, this is, I think, uh, going to be a segue to our discussion of uh, what is Congress's role in abortion. But even before we get to that, um, just it'd be very helpful for our listeners to understand from someone who is in the thick of it, just, how do members of Congress think about their responsibilities under the Constitution? It depends. Uh, it depends on what your background is. I came with a legal background. I came with the kind of academic curiosity about government and uh, understanding the framework. Uh, you have people in Congress who came right out of a business background. They've been very successful. They, they uh, were able to cobble together um, a very good record in the private sector. Uh, they may not have thought about some of these issues uh, as uh, thoroughly as, as others had. Um, medical doctors, physicians uh, uh, come in with unique perspectives. Uh, I, I think one of the challenges for members of Congress is the breadth of work that is required. Um, this, the breadth of substance, substantive issues that we're expected to, to have some uh, knowledge about. And, and you think tax policy, trade policy, environmental policy, uh, veterans issues, the need to make sure we have sufficient resources to be paying the commitments we've made in Social Security and Medicare, the whole healthcare space, um, financial, uh, the financial markets. I was on the Financial Services Committee, which had a very broad portfolio of securities markets, insurance, banks, community banks, credit unions, the Federal Reserve, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of work that, that members are really called to do do they have the bandwidth to, to drill into things like what you're talking about? You know, is this something that Congress should be doing? What are they doing? Um, one of the, the reforms I tried to, to put through, which was soundly rejected, unfortunately, I, I made an argument that I thought that we needed to have more control over the House calendar because I don't think there's enough time, frankly, hmm. for, for the House to be... Uh, looking at things and as it stands now typical schedule is you fly in on a Monday you fly out on a Thursday 
there's a district work period every month. Um, I wrote a piece in National Affairs uh, a couple years ago where I suggested a number of reforms, and I suggested changing the calendar. Because when you have a calendar like that, you empower leadership, uh, you empower the people left behind, that would be your staff, you empower the institutional lobbying community to be working with staff and leadership to craft bills, and then you get back and you see the work they're doing and you didn't have a chance to amend it. So I think there needs to be more time for members to be here doing the work that they're supposed to be doing because it's a huge government. We need to have more accountability over it. We have to have more control over it. So I suggested changing the calendar. We're pretty much between January and the 4th of July. You're going to be here do, doing a, a Monday through Friday job. And yet we would have some breaks in between around the Easter Passover holiday, uh, Memorial Day. But by and large, you're going to be watching over this government and, and, and executing your legislative responsibility. Uh, it actually sounds more like historically what members of Congress would do before, you know, uh, <laughs> the transportation revolutions, uh, where yeah. really there were long stretches of time where legislators, they, they had to deliberate and, and, and uh, pass bills, uh, to hold hearings, because it was just accepted that they would be have uh, back in their home districts for an equally long you know, stretch of time. Well, and you, and you can get there because you can have members be back in their districts most of the summer then. If you, if you work through the 4th of July, then, again, a lot of the southern uh, school districts, are, their, their summer break is in July, and they go back early August. Uh, right now, we just have an August recess. Well, that's great for the folks in the north who, who have summer vacation then, and they can see their kids then. But I think if you had a break between the 4th of July and Labor Day, look, you can be working your district, uh, getting a, a, a lot done at that time, come back after Labor Day, wrap up the appropriations process to make sure the government's funded by September 30, and then you could be doing other kind of oversight be, up until Thanksgiving. And then, again, a break where you're back in the district working it between Thanksgiving and, and the New Year's holiday. Uh, part of the problem is the government's too big. <laughs> we, we've got uh, the government's in too many areas. Uh, it begs the question about the nature of limited government. Um, also, some of the issues we, we, we would get into talking about with respect to uh, constitutionally who is making the laws. Uh, and I mentioned this in the National Affairs piece how much we delegated to the executive branch, to the administrative agencies, mm -hmm. how much the administrative agencies have grabbed, how much of that has been uh, acquiesced to or allowed to by the courts. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a chance to, to, to hit some of the resets with looking at the Chevron Doctrine, which, right. gives, which gives agencies uh, significant discretion on how to interpret these statutes. Well, and I think you you supported the was it the separation of powers restoration act Separate, and reigns and well, you've been you've been on this, this kicker for a while critical piece of legislation yeah. where yeah and the left didn't like the reigns act the reigns act was regulations of the executive in need of scrutiny which basically said anytime there is an agency that puts out a regulation that's going to have a hundred million dollar impact on the economy bring it back to Congress for an up or down vote mm -hmm. this is not going to be the end of regulation. It's going to be the beginning of accountability for regulation. Look, if there's a regulation out there that makes sense, that, that uh, understand, regulations are laws, okay? Under our constitutional framework, Congress is supposed to make the laws, not some unelected bureaucrats sitting off at an agency. 
So if this is a significant regulation that's going to really impact the American people, then the lawmakers need to take accountability for that. If they vote no on it and the people don't like that, well, they can hold that person accountable at the ballot box. If they vote yes for it uh, and the people like that, well, they, they can get reelected. Mm-hmm. But you can't unelect a bureaucrat. You can't uh, go into a voting booth and say, I don't really like that particular rule, the waters of the USA, which is going to regulate little puddles on my, on my 20-acre farm. I, you know, I want to stop that, but you can't do that. Now you're left to hiring lawyers, go to court, and if you can get uh, uh, the court to, to recognize some of these issues, then, then mm-hmm. you're back in. But that's, that's not the way the government was supposed to be run. We're supposed to have government of, by, and for the people, where you, you the people, have control at the ballot box over the laws being passed. Well, the administrative agencies definitely have the, the staffing and the um, uh, wherewithal. Um, as, as, I'm sorry, sorry, the staffing and the expertise to be able to um, you know craft these kinds well, they, of regulations. They certainly have the staffing. Mm-hmm. Okay, do they have the expertise? Okay, so and, that's and, a, that's another well, that's well, another question well, altogether. The, the, the presumption yeah. that that since we give it off to the bureaucrats that they are the technical, and that's the excuse they make. Oh, we have to have it's so technically complex. Well, I have uh, uh, three words for you: Silicon Valley Bank. I forgot who said it, but somebody said an intern could have solved the problem at, at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, yet you had the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco who had responsibility for keeping an eye on that. And they never did their job. Mm-hmm. And I remember on the Financial Services Committee, we have one economist on the Financial Services Committee. The Fed has 400 economists. But they couldn't understand interest rate risk mm-hmm. at, at a bank like Silicon Valley Bank. I was, you know, I was shocked when I, I worked before uh, at the James Wilson, I was at the James Wilson Institute. I worked for Legistorm, which covered, you know, money and politics in general, you know, staff and uh, member um, trips, privately and publicly financed trips and staff salaries. But I was always amazed that there were so few staffers in Congress uh, who handled specific, um, you know, issues as opposed to the, you know, wide swaths of uh, regulators and lawyers who work in the administrative agencies, um, especially because we would track the growth of the staff, but um, it's really been flat since the 1970s, maybe indexed for inflation. And I guess, would you consider a (laughs) kind of like a a restoration of sorts being that if we're going to rein in the administrative state, we may have to beef up Congress's staffing capabilities? Uh, Yes. And I think yeah. even if that means yes, Congress needed yes. to appropriate more money for well, its own. Well, yes, and, and if you take a look at the national affairs piece, I made the point uh, you also need more members of Congress, which is counterintuitive for a conservative to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other folks who, are, who have written about this. I think uh, I forget who the, the columnist was in the Post, but uh, from a, a more liberal side, was saying, yeah, we need more members of the House. Uh, but you, we have not changed that since 1911 or 1917. I think there is, we've been stuck at 435. And, and so the congressional districts have gone from 200,000 people to 750,000 people. You're losing diversity of thought. You're losing uh, uh, the kind of ability to influence your legislator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suggested we should have up to 600 members in the House, uh, which would bring us on par with other Western representative uh, governments where, where you look at the average number of people that, that legislators represent um, I, I think that uh, to have more 
more people engaged in the process. Again, this is supposed to be government of, by, and for the people. Uh, I think it's easier for the special interest to capture a majority of 435 than it would be to capture a majority of 600. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I, I think that's a reform that people should be looking at. And yet, to make sure that you have the staff to, to be doing the oversight you need. But part of the problem, too, is government's, again, too big. We need to be shaving parts of the government, particularly as you look at the, the funding responsibility we have for Social Security and Medicare. I tried to make this argument 10 years ago. You know, you know like if we're going to keep the commitments we've made in these critical programs, should we be getting into everything else? You know, wh- why, for example, do we have to have a program to build 500,000 electrical vehicle charging stations at the cost of 5 or $7 billion dollars? You know, those were being built by the private sector before the Biden administration came along and wanted this in their, in their infrastructure bill. It's inexcusable, uh, the, the, the way the people... And they think, again, do they have the expertise? They think that this is actually going to have an impact on climate. I hate to bust the bubble. It's not. It's not. They're just not... They, as long they, as India and China are doing they, what they, well, they want well, to but, do. But, but there is not a single person who will tell you what what the impact on global temps will be because of this, that, or another program. You know, we had the Obama Clean Power Plan, uh, um, which was going to lower global temperatures by, I believe, three one-hundredths of a degree. Really? You're doing that? You're forcing these changes? Uh, um, it's, it's all arbitrage. It's, it's, it's way to get money moving, and the experts will pretend that they know what they're doing. But they don't. You go back to what Bill Buckley said in the 1960s about preferring to be governed by the first number of names he found in the Boston phone directory than the Harvard faculty. Because these people have lost common sense. Look at the whole COVID response. They lost common sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm blackpilled and, and pessimistic on, on any kind of... Uh, uh, coordinated effort to tackle uh, a major problem going forward after how we handled uh, uh, COVID. Um, but nonetheless... Uh, COVID, the financial crisis, Afghanistan. And here I would tip my hat to Craig Whitlock and the work he do with the Afghanistan papers, Craig being a reporter from the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while you get some good stuff coming out, but he documented the, 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 the justifications for that war over 20 years. And, it, and I said this at the, back when I was in office. The Overseas Contingency Operation Fund became the Pentagon's equivalent of what Reagan said, being the closest thing to eternal life this side of having <laughs> being a federal program. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, every year we re-upped it. They come in with their rationalizations, their justifications. They're putting... It, it go back to what Tory Clark said back in the, the, uh, under Don Rumsfeld. She, Tory was the, the spokesman, spokeswoman for, for the Pentagon. You know, putting lipstick on a pig. Um, look, it's messy. And don't pretend you know all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, so I think, like I said, uh, I, I don't see any alternative, though, than, than Congress having to take a leading role, even if Congress, every, but, every but, opportunity but, but there, they, all, they, they would abdicate that duty. You, but, you, but, but you need a chief executive who, who will have an ounce of humility who understands the structure of this government the way it's supposed to be mm-hmm. and seek to empower the lawmakers. Um, it, it, you know, kind of a Coolidge-type humility where, look, I'm the president. 
I understand I have my role. My role is to execute the law, but frankly, there's way too much power in this executive branch, so I'm going to make Congress. And this is where I was frankly disappointed when President Trump never vetoed any of the massive spending bills mm-hmm. that Congress put through. Uh, uh, he threatened to, and every, at least the Republicans' presidents complain about the 2,000-page bills that get passed with you know six hours of mm-hmm. review and spend trillions. And every dollars. every section begins the secretary shall not not here's what we want. <laughs> I did. I remember doing a speech. You know, talking about, remember back in, for those of who can remember, we're old enough, but Reagan in 1987 walking out to the podium with a big stack of paper, and it was one of these omnibus bills. And he said, Congress should never pass one of these again. And if you do, I'll veto it. Well, unfortunately, that's become the routine. Uh, I mean, there's no accountability there. Mm-hmm. Well, we talk about no accountability for Congress, um, and yet even when they in the past have supported, for example, uh, a federal role on abortion. Now, in the post-Dobbs universe, when they have a chance to actually effectuate, um, or at least the Supreme Court has said it will no longer be a, um, you know, a barrier uh, uh, to effectuate a pro-life agenda, we now see, in the words of Frank Cannon, rapid onset federalism among many of these Republican legislators. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were in the Congress legislating on abortion, and now what you're looking at in this post-Dobbs universe where some of your colleagues who were pro-life and have, have voted for bills specifically that would um, define a federal role uh, on abortion um, you know, emanating from the Congress. Now, why suddenly there's this um, uh, new tune that they're singing? Um, great question. Uh, and you remember in the fall of 2020 when Lindsey Graham suggested we should have a bill that would expand protection for human beings, uh, particularly human beings capable of feeling pain. Uh, you, you, you understand that the United States is one of seven countries in the world that allow abortion after 20 weeks. We're in the company with countries like China, North Korea. We have a Declaration of Independence that clearly defined the reason that governments are instituted. They are to protect inalienable rights, that among them are the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's fascinating to me that we have, how this has never come up in the, <laughs> the debates about protecting human life. Uh, Kamala Harris on the anniversary of the Dobbs decision is down in Tallahassee talking about our rights in the Declaration of Independence. She talks about the, the right to liberty. She talks about the right to pursue happiness. She forgot the first of them. The right to, if we don't have a right to life, all other rights are contingent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think that was intentional? Well, of course it was. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot, oh, actually I say you cannot spin it away, but there are people who have spun it away. The sympathizers and the advocates for slavery spun it away in the 1830s, the 1840s, the 1850s. And if you go back and, and, and look at what they were saying, this is all credit to Harry Jaffa and the work he did kind of breaking open that scholarship back in the 1950s and for his career. Um, unfortunately, Jaffa isn't taught as widely as he should be. We're trying to do our part, um, <laughs> but yes. But so, so for those who might suggest, yeah, I look, yes, federalism, yes, federalism, 
But there are things that that states cannot. You, you, you look, a state can't go and legalize slavery. No, we we have a Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution that says they can't. We have a Fourteenth Amendment that guarantees equal protection of the law, and that no state shall deprive anybody of life, liberty, or property. You can't have a state just go and and legalize. You know, killing of human beings. You can't. A Federalist would say, no, you can't do that. Uh, we have a part of the 14th Amendment that gives Congress responsibility for applying the 14th Amendment. Uh, uh, we have the touchstone of our republic, the Declaration of Independence, that has relevance here. This country would not exist but for the Declaration of Independence. And you go back to what Lincoln was saying about the Declaration. You know, if you have been taught doctrines that conflict with the Great Charter, I entreat you to come back. Come back to the truths in the Declaration. So, you know, federalism, yeah, but don't forget that, that federalism isn't a context. Uh, um, and so as we kind of navigate, you know, the, the post- or the, the Dobbs era, the post-Roe era ahead, we got to be mindful of the principles that, that are, are our guideposts. Um, does that mean that uh, we're going to get everything we want tomorrow? Absolutely not. Yeah, there, is an, there, there is a pragmatism. Lincoln was a pragmatist. He mm-hmm. was an incrementalist. Uh, he did not expect, he was hoping that there would not be a war. War is terrible. Oh yeah, uh, and and the and the cost that that happened that, but but once it came, look, he was there with the Emancipation Proclamation. He was there advocating for the passing of the Thirteenth Amendment, which Congress did pass uh, uh, while he was still alive. It was mm-hmm. ratified after he was murdered. Well, even even before that, on July Fourth, eighteen sixty-one, after Sumter, what does he do? He gives a speech in the Congress and says the executive has made his determination on how to respond to war. But now he invites you, Congress, to make your own determination. So this is Lincoln being a statesman saying, I, I know what powers of office I have in wartime, but I now understand that that is not unlimited, and it's going to be bound by you, Congress, yes. your determination. We, we really re- need a revival of Lincoln. Uh, um, uh, we are coming up on the 250th, 250th anniversary of, of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, 2026. This should give us something to be discussing during the 2024 presidential campaign. Uh, um, I remember well, you know, I was was 14 years old in 1976, the bicentennial, where where there was jubilation over the 200th anniversary of this country, proud of of what was in the Declaration. You know, unfortunately, we've seen these movements over the last decade that, that undermine our declaration undermined the founding of our country and suggest that this country was founded as a white supremacist society or these documents are white supremacist documents, the Declaration, the Constitution. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, uh, Lincoln understood the, the, the transcendence of these documents, the transcendence of the Declaration, and he was pushing back against those who didn't believe that they were universal or transcendent. The likes of John Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, uh, Stephen Douglas, 
senator from Illinois who, who suggested that if 51% of the people say something's okay, then it's okay, divorced from the inalienable rights that are in our uh, uh, Declaration of Independence and the rights that we recognize in our Constitution. Freedom of speech, mm-hmm. freedom of the press, freedom of the free, the free exercise of religion. You know, it's, it's, I don't think it's coincidence that the first right protected in our, in our founding documents are the right to life. If you go through the Declaration and the, and the Constitution, the first right that's mentioned is the right to life. The first freedom that's mentioned is the free exercise of religion. And you consider the, the, the people who settled this land, who came here looking for freedom of conscience. Pennsylvania, William Penn, uh, my com- the Commonwealth I come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are the, the underpinnings of who we are. And to have deconstructionists come in and try to blow all that up to rebuild their society, it, it's not a pretty place. Well, it gives us steady work. Um, and, of course, uh, we're always reminded of Lincoln's um, you know, prudence. And uh, you know, there's that wonderful quote, um, uh, with charity toward all and malice toward none. Right. We, have right. to, we, we, we have to be, I think, vigilant, but also understanding that we have, we, 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 have, we have a lot of work uh, on persuasion. If we have a campaign in 2024 that really touches on Lincoln, uh, um, so much so that we get a mandate coming out of 2024 for to look at what Lincoln said mm-hmm. and to even have whoever is elected as president to be sworn in at the Lincoln Memorial <laughs> as opposed to being sworn in at the Capitol mm. uh, to remind us of who we are, to remind us of the good of this country, the exceptionalism of this country, uh, grounded in those self-evident truths that Lincoln talked about in our Declaration, uh, freedom, you go back again what Reagan talked about freedom uh, uh, always being one generation away from extinction and that we have to teach people about it and that it is the greatest solution to the human condition for people to be free and to have ordered liberty mm-hmm. I mean the, the, the dystopian tragedy of the drug crisis that we're going through where you have Cities like Philadelphia, which has the largest open-air drug market in the country, in an area known as Kensington, and you have people there advocating, you know, some, who would say, oh, just give us safe injection sites. You know, George Bush used to talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations in the context of education. I would contend this is a a hard bigotry of no expectations. This is a violation of human dignity. Uh, People deserve much better. While the left might offer safe injunction sites, those who believe in human dignity should be offering treatment programs. As we as we wrap, um, Congressman, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can follow your work um, and, uh, in general, um, you know, what what are what are you working on uh, right right yeah, now my, that they'd be interested in? My Twitter handle is uh, Keith Rothfuss, K E I T H R O T H F U S at Keith Rothfuss. Uh, I am engaged in any number of things back in Pennsylvania. I, I, I do some work with the local community bank. I serve on the board of that. Uh, a lot of small business lending that we do. Uh, watching uh, how, how what Washington does impacts our local economy. Uh, uh, there's some nonprofit things I'm engaged in. Uh, I still dabble in the political world and and give advice to clients and mm-hmm. help them find the resources they need to do their campaigns. Uh, otherwise, staying engaged with my family and uh, and hoping for much better days ahead for the country. 
As are, as are we. Well, thank you so much, Congressman, and it was a, a real treat, and uh, we can't wait to have you on our podcast again soon. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.